This episode was brought to you by our friends over at 405 Brewing, Norman's first brewery, where they are creatively brewing liquid art to share with the community. So if you're ever in my neck of the woods, be sure to check them out, and you can find out more information about their taproom hours on their website, 405brewing.com. Welcome to the 57th episode of the Real Life Diabetes Podcast with me, myself, and I, host Amber Kluwer. Uh, It's been a while. It's been about two and a half months since I've released anything, and for good reason. I've been very busy with life and wanted to make sure that each guest that I have is quality. I don't want to, you know, I want my listeners to stay happy, and I hit the mother load with this one. So in doing my normal, just checking out social media, I came across an article uh, by a gentleman named Bram Sable Smith, who is an independent journalist roving the Midwest. And his article titled Insulin's High Cost Leads to Lethal Rationing is mind-blowing and something that we're seeing and hearing way too often. So what better person to help kick this off? Um, And not only is his article informative and fabulous, um, and you can tell he's very compassionate, but he's also someone who has type 1 diabetes. So he's living the real life, and that is clearly reflected in his article. So before I kick things off, I want to start by just sharing a couple of show notes. Um, As we're going into Halloween and the holiday season, if you'll please click on the Amazon banner, which is on the right side of the diabetesdailygrind.com website, it throws a little change back my way so I can keep the show coming. I'd also like to encourage you to continue to share, like, and, and post things on all of our social media because your comments help fuel me as to what, what's coming next. So I'm going to get started and this one was off to a little bit of a rocky start. So please forgive me as I'm dealing with technology by myself. Yeah, by myself. All right, listeners, this is round three where I'm trying out some new technology and have failed miserably. So Bram is kind enough to be patient with me and we're going to try this again. And I will say that's on top of starting 20 minutes late because my Dexcom let me know my blood sugar was plummeting. And um, so that triggered a couple of unique conversations. And that's how we're going to start this podcast. So let's talk about whenever I texted you a second ago to say, hey, my blood sugar is Thinking and his response was, "What did you say?" <laughs> yeah, that my uh, my Dexcom sensor just ran out of batteries, so I'm I'm flying blind for the first time in a while. So when you say flying blind, how long are we talking? Like when did so, you not have any sensors, or what are we doing? So I think I need uh, my sensors out of batteries, so I need to go. I guess sorry, it's the transmitter. So I've oh, got, you know, I've got plenty of like the thing, the sensors are sticking on me, uh, but it's a transmitter that's out of batteries. So I think I have one at my parents' house. They live in Missouri. I live in Wisconsin. So I'm going to go. I'm going home next weekend. So I'm going to go check the one there. Why um, you have them overnighted? Because <laughs> I don't think they know what to look for. <laughs> Send them a picture of the box. I can't imagine. <laughs> like if you think you have one there, oh my gosh. Sensors are, are a totally different thing because like you can throw something up on social media and some they'll usually throw you a bone. But right. those, those are like gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry to hear about your your Dexcom break. Um, no, it's okay. Well, and I, what I was saying earlier, like I said, we've had this conversation, so I apologize if it's not as authentic as I would like. But you know, I was saying, you know, I been very blessed with Dexcom and all the things that have been gifted to me and being a Dexcom warrior. Um, 
and I was on the G6 for a while, but I'm now back on the G5 because my insurance sucks. And um, mm. I got an error message at my women's bourbon club, and it said that I had some weird message I'd never seen before. But basically, it was saying that my battery was urgent, urgently low or something that I needed to contact and order my supplies immediately. And I thought, well, it's still working. You know, I can figure this out. So I ended up texting my Dexcom rep, and she's phenomenal. And I got hooked up the next day, and it kicked the bucket as I was driving to work. So I had everything that I needed. And that was on a Wednesday. So, you know, kind of chaotic. And, again, one of those moments in diabetes that you don't want to have those holy crap moments like I'm out of something, especially when you're so dependent on it. But then I, on Sunday, ran out of Traceba, and it was a sample because I was trying it, so I didn't have a script. And so I scrambled there, but was thankful that I remembered that Traceba has a longer has longer time in your system. So I was okay there, but it's one of those reminders, as we were talking, um, is, you know, you become so dependent on something, and it gives you peace of mind, so when you don't have it, it's it's panicky, which is pretty much what this whole podcast is going to be about. But um, yeah. so, Bram, where are you calling? Where am I calling you? Or where do you live right now? I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. So I just moved up here. I'm from Missouri, uh, and uh, I worked in Missouri. I'm a public radio reporter, and I worked in Missouri for about five years, a little four and a half years, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife just got a job up here in uh, Madison. I guess I should say my now wife just got a job in Madison, <laughs> and uh, I moved up here. I, I think she's my now wife because, really, she was my fiance. We, <laughs> yeah, uh, got engaged, we got engaged in April, and we set a wedding date, which still hasn't happened yet, which is next year. Mm-hmm. Um, but we got married early uh, so that I could move up here and be a freelance reporter. And still have health insurance. That's probably uh, pertinent to this podcast, I'd say. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things we were really worried about was making sure that I would have health insurance. And, you know, really fortunately, like, her employer has completely great health insurance. So we decided to get married a year early. We had a little ceremony with just our parents and siblings. Uh, And so now we're married a year before our wedding. And insurance is a big reason why. Isn't that crazy? Okay, so with her having a new job, um, how long do you? How long until you are actually on the plan? Does that make I just sense? Got I it. Yeah, okay. I just got it. So I I left my job uh, the first week in September, and so then I got to keep uh, I got to keep my old insurance through September, and now it's October. So now I'm fully on her plan. Oh. paperwork and everything. I've got a insurance card. Uh, now I just need to set up an endocrinologist appointment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be curious, too, when you do have to buy insulin with your new insurance, what the difference in cost will be. What was your cost of insulin prior to with your old insurance? Yeah, so it's fluctuated, obviously, um, but um, this year it's it was around, uh, it was in like the 150 to 180 range. So what I, what I use is two vials of Cunalog a month. That's it. Okay. I'm on the, I'm on the, uh, Omnipod insulin pump. Um, and I use two vials of Cunalog a month. And that was costing me between 150 and $180 a month. But last year, those two vials a month would cost me, I got over $200 last year. I got over the $200 mark. That was, wow. that was pretty, uh, that was wild. And that was after insurance. And I had good insurance, just uh, not, uh, not so much with uh, the drug taxes. Yeah. I guess specifically. Yes. Yeah. Um, so you're on the Omnipod. And so you were diagnosed. So I, I was mentioning earlier, you know, I was diagnosed, diagnosed at age eight. I didn't know many people with diabetes. And then when I got into my 30s was the first time that I would heard about, like, type 1.5 or the late-onset person mm-hmm. with diabetes. So, yeah, share with our listeners, um, how did you get diagnosed? Yeah. Well, I was 23. I was in college in St. Louis. Uh, it was finals week, actually. Um, but, oh, uh, Lord. When I was actually diagnosed. But, so, I, was, I think I was pretty fortunate in that I was, um, I was doing some community organizing work in St. Louis. 
And one of the things we did was we set up a health screening for the neighborhood I was working in. And so, you know, being, you know, a, a, a very confident 23-year-old, I was like, well, I'm going to go through these health screenings, too, to prove how healthy I am. And I got to the blood sugar screening, and these are first-year medical students doing the screening, and they gave me a reading, and I can't remember what it was, probably in the 300s. I hadn't eaten it all that day, um, but it's probably in the 300s. And they took the reading, and they just kind of looked at each other. They're like, that can't be right. So they did it again, and they looked at each other, and then they went and got their supervisor, who was a second-year medical student, and uh, he came up and said, okay, well, as you can see, you know, we have this little chart for the blood sugar range. It's between, you know, 50 and 150, and as you can see, you're off the chart. So uh, it's very likely you have diabetes. You should go see a doctor. So I went to uh, I went to the student health at my university, and they said, well, it's almost Thanksgiving. You've probably been eating a lot of pie. Why don't you come back after Thanksgiving? What? So I went back after, yeah. So I went back after Thanksgiving, and they did, I guess, an A1C and sent me home. They didn't have the reading yet. And then they called me the next morning. They woke me up, and they said, oh, uh, we need you to come back in. And I said, oh, well, I have class. Uh, can we do it tomorrow? <laughs> and then they're just like, I don't know. Uh, let me see. And so we hung up, and then she called back five minutes later. She's like, you need to get in here right now. <laughs> So I, I went to student health and I got uh, a two or three hour crash course in diabetes 101 and went on with my life. It was finals week. I took all my finals. I feel pretty fortunate about how it all happened. You are, I mean, that is crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, so when they told you you had diabetes, did you even know what it was? Well, I had a sense. So I, uh, I used to eat backpacking trips at the uh, summer camp that I used okay. to go to in Missouri. The oldest kids, the 15-year-olds, we would take them to Colorado backpacking in the mountains for a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I read those trips for three years. And I was a medic. I was uh, trained as a wilderness first responder. Mm. And my very first trip, we had three out of 40 kids, we had three type 1 diabetics. Oh, my so, gosh. I had I had learned about diabetes in my first responder course, but I you know I didn't know anything. You know I I thought like the extent of my knowledge of diabetes was like, well if one of these kids passes out, you should put some Jello powder in their lip and that might revive them magically. You know, um, but so I, I worked with those kids. Um, they're not kids anymore. They're all adults now. Uh, <laughs> so in contact with a few of them. But so I, I worked with them, helping to try to manage their blood sugars, making sure they're okay and stuff on the trips. But that, and you know, I had, I think, one friend growing up who's diabetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that just meant that he got to eat frosted flakes in class. And uh, <laughs> we were all just jealous, you know? So uh, I really, I think if I'm being honest, I really just didn't know anything about it. Okay, so you are given a crash course, and I've said this before, like, parents today that are, who are, have a child who's diagnosed, you know, they go through that same crash course and are sitting home with a backpack. And I, I mean, my mom, we spent two weeks in the hospital. Like, mm-hmm. there was, and I wasn't in VKA, and I, I don't recall, I don't think so, I'm pretty sure I wasn't, but you know, I, I just cannot imagine a, as a parent, what that would feel like. But B, as somebody who's 23, like, you're enjoying life. That's what everybody's doing. You're having fun. And did, when you were diagnosed, did you feel like, did you get the, oh, my gosh, this is going to change my life dramatically? Or were you like, eh, pick up, stick this, you know, I got this? You know, what was your attitude? Uh, yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. Uh, like, when I, when the people at the health screen said, you probably have diabetes, yeah, I kind of, like, wallowed in sorrow for a while driving around. Uh, you know, driving back from that screening, I was like, oh, no, you know, kind of lamenting the life I could have lived. Um, but then um, when I was actually diagnosed and, you know, given the, the plan and all that, I I don't know. Maybe I'm fortunate enough that I was I was old enough and had kind of a nice enough life experience to kind of put in perspective a little bit. Mm-hmm. I just kind of thought that... Um, 
Well, this sucks, and uh, I'm going to try to not let it change my life as much as possible. So, you know, I'd still go, you know, wilderness backpacking in Colorado, and, um, you know, that I, the, I was, that when I was diagnosed and got my crash course and all of that, the next day I took a final, you know, uh, all yeah. that stuff. Um, so I, I think I was pretty adamant about not letting it um Defeat you? But not letting, yeah, not letting it defeat me. But I think even yeah. that in its own way is like maybe a little bit of overcompensation. It's only been the past few years where I've like really kind of been coming to grips with like, no, it's like, you know, being diabetic isn't being defeated by diabetes. It's being diabetic. And, you know, it's just the fact of the matter that there are complications and considerations that I have and my wife has. Uh, you know, about my health that other people don't have. And I think that's like been a healthy, um, a healthy realization for me to come to as well. Okay. Two but it also doesn't have. stop me from going backpacking. So, <laughs> which is, that's what this whole, yes, living life, no matter what the complication that a situation is. So, um, two questions. One right off the bat is, does your wife have um, access to your Dexcom numbers. Oh, she would love that. No, she doesn't. Uh, <laughs> that's, I think that's mostly because I've been lazy. It took me forever to get Dex. Well, actually, no, it's not me being lazy. I use a, a Samsung, and it took a long time to get the app on the Samsung, at least oh, okay. for me. Um, and then I just, like, haven't set it up for her. I'm sure she'd love it, but, uh, no, she doesn't have access to it yet. <laughs> Maybe she'll hear this and uh, make some demands. And I only ask because there's a woman I host a diabetes support group at the, the wellness center that I work work at, and you know her husband is the person that's type one, and she you know he share she sees all of his numbers. She also has a tracker on his on him because he, his blood sugar seemed to run low, and so if he were to pass out, they would know where he is, and so. You know, I you know I'm not married, and so I just wonder if I would want to share that with somebody because I don't want anybody else to worry about me. But I guess if they knew what was going on, maybe that would give them peace of mind. You know, so mm-hmm. it's, it's different for everybody. Yeah. yeah. Well, my my wife works in healthcare, and so she's she knows what it all means to. Oh, so, good. Uh, she she's pretty um, she's pretty good about it. like she yeah. So I, I think at some point she will get access to my Dexcom data, and I'll just. I think more than anything, what it will do is give her peace of mind, like when she's at work. Or I think yeah. really, especially because I travel a lot for work, um, mm-hmm. and I think it would really give her peace of mind to uh, to be able to look at my sugars um, when I'm on the road. Okay, now here's the second question. I thought of something else in the meantime. So the word diabetic. This is, and it's, you know, uh, potato, potato, I don't know how the words are there, but some people are really offended by it because we are people living with diabetes that does not define us. So it's not, I'm a diabetic. So what do you, obviously with you saying diabetic, and I have the word diabetic tattooed on my arm for the love of God. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, so, but after I got the diabetic, I put like six months later type one because I thought if Somebody were to find me, they don't know that if I have, it doesn't matter. So, what do you think about the argument there um, about the word diabetic? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I'd say is, uh, I, you know, I'm a health report. I'm a public radio reporter. I cover health, and uh, this is about your tattoo. I have done some stories with some EMS workers, and they find out I'm diabetic, and they're like, "Do you have a, a medical alert necklace?" I'm like, "Yeah." And I've been thinking about getting a tattoo, too. They're like, tattoos don't matter. You need the necklace. So I just put a plug in for the necklaces for the EMS. (laughs) Well, and the funny Uh, thing, okay, on that note, I have to say that I was literally at lunch with my mom, and I told her that I was interested in it, and she was like, I don't know. I don't like you having a visible tattoo, yada, whatever. And then there was a group of firemen that were in line, and I walked up to that group, and I said, listen, I'm thinking about getting the word, you know, the fact that I'm, diabetic tattooed on my arm 
would you ever look? And they said, we always check the risk because it's becoming so common. And also with people that are highly allergic to like penicillin or something that would kill them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, I would say do both. Why not? Yeah. You know, because you Why never not? know who's going to find you. If you want to get a tattoo, great. And I, I've been considering a tattoo, actually. I have one designed and everything. I just need to go and do it. <laughs> but uh, even if you're doing the tattoo, you should uh, you should get the necklace or a bracelet as well. Um, yeah. But the other point about diabetic, uh, you know, I haven't thought about this a lot. Because no one's, um, maybe it's like the fortune of the company I keep or also the fortune of not having been a child while having diabetes. Yeah. Um, good but, uh, you know, no one's ever tried to call me a diabetic in a derogatory sense. Hmm. And, and also, you know, the various places I've worked from, like, leading the backpacking trips to, you know, being a public radio reporter now, um, people haven't limited my uh, options. You know, they haven't said right. you can't do that because you're diabetic. So, you know, I haven't given it a lot of great thought. I call myself on Twitter a, a funky diabetic, which is a <laughs> reference to the rapper uh, Fife Dog, who was also a funky diabetic. He's part of a tribe called Quest. Oh, yeah. He's, I he's totally since cat. But he, he, they have this uh, line in uh, one of the songs, I think it's Oh My God, uh, when he was, you know, he's kind of rapping by himself, and then he's like, when's the last time you heard a funky diabetic? Uh, and so I kind of love, you know, I, I kind of love that. So I call myself a funky diabetic. Uh, but, you know, yeah. I, I, also, I also get to, I get the point of, you know, it's all about, words are all about how they're wielded, you know, and who wields mm-hmm. them. And, yeah, I can very much see a situation where I'm sure, you know, I'm if I had a better memory, I, there might have even been a time when my friend, uh, who I grew up with, was diabetic. Uh, I'm sure we ragged on him about it, you know. So I, I can definitely see where that argument would come in. Well, and I think when, you know, my friends, you know, growing up in high school where I would do stupid stuff or whatever, only when I really started talking about diabetes did they ever say, have you thought about testing your blood sugar, you know, or something, and I would get really pissed. <laughs> I was like, why don't you test your damn blood sugar? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I just, I'm just angry right now. But, you know, looking back, I'm sure that most of those weird times were were because my blood sugar was off and I wasn't keeping an eye on things and, and didn't have a CGM at that point. I don't think they existed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it's just, it's it's wonderful with all the technology that is now available that, you know, I no longer have an excuse. You know, I know that my blood sugar is high and I'm going to act crazy or, you know, so I try not to let that happen. But so let's go into the reason. So I started stalking Bram via Twitter after coming across an article that blew up online and especially in the diabetes Community and it was insulin's high cost leads to lethal rationing, and that is a hot topic right now, as it should be. And not only with the people in the diabetes online community, but you know, I've been speaking with a lot of the pharmaceutical companies as well as to what is going on. So, do you want to talk a little bit about how you came across Alex's situation and how you got in touch with his mother? Yeah. Um Sure. I, you know, I don't know if I said this piece is a longer piece on the, the podcast I originally reported uh, called The Workaround, but it, it's one of these things that I, I hadn't thought much about because, I, you know, I've been very fortunate that my whole life, much less the time of the seven years I've been uh, diabetic, um, I've had insurance. Yeah. And uh, so I haven't thought too much about drug prices, um, I've just always kind of accepted them. And I, I started to think about it a little bit more last year when I, I broke the $200 threshold for my mm-hmm. monthly of insulin. I was like, dang, this is, I remember when it cost less than $100. How am I spending? I've only been diabetic for seven years. How does it cost so much more? And I started looking into it. Um, and I found this community, 
uh, I call them diabetes Twitter. Uh, you know, they um, tweet under the hashtag insulin for all with the mm-hmm. number four. And I started reading about the work they're doing, and I thought, hey, this is really interesting. Um, and so I called a few of them, and I, I did some interviews with them. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think any of it got published. Um, I was just kind of doing background interviews. And they aligned them and said, well, you know who you should talk to is uh, Nicole Smith-Holt. Because I was doing these, call, these calls right around the time that she came forward with her mm-hmm. son's story. So, I mean, just very quickly, her son um, turned 26 last year. And 26 is the age when you age off of your parents' insurance. Oh, yeah. You know, I remember. Able mm-hmm. to be on it. Yeah. And, um, and you know, with his salary, which was maybe 35000 a year, his options were pretty sparse. He was in uh, Minnesota, and Minnesota has Medicaid expansion, but he made too much money for Medicaid expansion. Mm-hmm. And um, when they looked at his options on the Obamacare marketplace, um, he didn't qualify for the insurance subsidy. And yeah. I'm not sure if that's because uh, of his salary itself or because of the time that he was looking for things. I actually... I'm not entirely clear on that, but um, he, he didn't qualify for the subsidy. So the best insurance plan he found cost something like $500 a month or $450 a month yeah. with a deductible of $7,600. Yeah. Uh, that meant he was going to have to go $7,600 out of pocket before his insurance kicked in in addition to the $500 a month. But he decided it would be easier for him, uh, more manageable for him, to pay for his insulin supplies, insulin and other diabetes supplies out of pocket. And that came after about $1,300 a month. I think he was on Atlantis pen and a Novolog pen. Um, and I forget what type of meter he used. Um, and so, you know, he, he aged out of his mom's insurance and he didn't make it one month. He died less than a month after losing his mom's insurance because he couldn't afford his insulin, and uh, he went into DKA, and he died. Um, and it's such a tragic story. Um, it is a tragic story, and the sad thing is, and maybe it's because it's, like I said, it's such a hot topic, we're hearing about it more and more. I mean, and I don't know if it's because of the increase of the price of insulin or the climate of the, the healthcare system as a whole, um, I think I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, certainly it's about we're hearing about it because the price of insulin is starting to reach this level that it's really we're hearing a lot more about um, people who have passed away, yeah, um, because they haven't been able to access their insulin. Uh, but I think it's also part of the healthcare system as a whole. You know, there's a, a very I'm, I'm a health reporter. There's a it seems like a very large problem with healthcare costs in general and, you know, the price of prescriptions, uh, of prescription medicines is very, um, it's a very good, uh, it's a very graspable, uh, symbol of that. And then within that, the price of insulin itself is a very good stand in, uh, you know, especially for reporters, it's a very good stand in for, you know, high prescription costs in, gen- costs in general because the stakes really are life and death. You know, this isn't just, um, you know, medicine that, like, you probably should be on. This is something that you're going to die if you don't get. Uh, so it, it's very, it's a lot more black and white than some of the other uh, prescription drug costs that are kind of out of control. Um, so I think it's a little bit mixture of both of the insulin specifically, but also to stand in for a larger healthcare conversation that um, we at least should be having in the country. It's, That's my job at least, though, so I'm a little biased. Well, and you know, I've got, I, I'm not going to say I have to be careful by any means, because um, I have this podcast for a reason, which is to talk about the real life issues of what we go through. And mm-hmm. we interviewed, and that's when Ryan Fightmaster was still a part of the team, 
um, uh, Elizabeth Rowley. I hope I say that correctly. Yeah, she went international. Yeah, we interviewed her in December of 2016, and I think it was at that moment that I really, not that I, and I'll go into that here in a second, but it was like, wow, this is serious. And I, when she even referenced, I think, in that one that somebody, and I'm going to say Africa, I can't recall, but would have to walk a whole day in Mm -hmm. like a crime, I mean, like you could get killed to get a bottle of insulin. And that was their family's budget for the month or something just. And, and, you know, that might have been a $23 bottle of insulin. I don't even remember what it was. But the things that other people in, in other areas are having to go through, and I have to say that I have just like um, Alec, when my parents, I rolled off their insurance, that was their biggest fear. Like, how is she ever going to make it? And my life has been um, one of service and nonprofit. And um, so I've never had a high salary. And I have thankfully had doctors or endocrinologists that, you know, made sure that I had a little, you know, insulin. And at one point when um, I couldn't do something, my doctor actually called a a low-income clinic in my community to say, she's never going to call you, but she's desperate. Like, so that nurse called me one day and said, your doctor's called and I know you're too prideful but I would really like for you to come in so we can help you out. And they had a discounted pharmacy. So I'll never forget getting test strips and my insulin for less than $20. And it was incredible. Like it it really saved a, my life, but B it allowed me to still work in the nonprofit sector where I wasn't getting paid, but I really wanted to complete some things. And I just remember feeling so ashamed, but also so thankful. Like, if my doctor had to made that call, you know, I remember just sitting with my my hand my my head in my hands, crying on the couch, like, what am I going to do? Like, I don't want to move back in with my parents. I don't want to get another job. You know, I you know, it's kind of a loss. And so, there was another situation around that same period of time. I'm outing myself as a poor person. This was in my late twenty, early thirties. Was that again working in the nonprofit world? I one of the Doctors had said, hey, you need to contact Abbott for test trips. They have this program. As you write in, you tell them the situation, they'll look at your financials, whatever. And so I was awarded X amount of test trips per month. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, this is awesome. So I mean, it was like heaven. And about nine months into it, I received a letter that said, because of the high demand for test trips for people that are low income, we are going to stop the program. And I thought, isn't that the exact opposite of what this is about? And and again, I had the resources available. I have never in my life lived a day without insulin, even in my poorest moments. But for the person that doesn't know about Lily's, you know, um, new, if you have low income, you know, you follow this cornerstone for care with never Nordis, all these other discount cards. You know, if you don't have access to that information, you're never going to know what to do. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge challenge. And I think, um, you know, I've had some, uh, I haven't been, actually been able to interview anyone at Eli Lilly, but I've had some off-the-record conversations with them. And, and I think that's something they're really focused on, too, is making sure um, uh, people know, like, they're concerned about, they want people to know about, you know, some of the assistance programs that they have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's great. I think that, um, I think people being aware of those programs is a huge challenge if people aren't aware of those programs. I don't think there's anything shameful at all in accessing those programs. I mean, it's not very long ago. Like Eli Lilly's new program, they just launched a few months ago. Um, yeah. You know, so it, it's like, you know, I've been fortunate. I've only been diabetic for seven years, but, um, You've been diabetic for so long, uh, you know, for most of your life, from my understanding it right. There, I, you know, there's much more resources available now than there were, you know, even 10 years ago. And I, I don't think there's anything shameful at all about accessing that. Yeah, that was, yeah, like I said, it was total pride and ego. And, uh-huh. I, you know, just, and I didn't want anyone in my community to know I couldn't afford it. And that's not where, where you know, that's not the 
what I wanted to put out to my community. Anywho, maybe yeah, that's, you also seem yeah. to be very fortunate uh, in a couple of senses. One, in having providers who would make that kind of call for you. That's kind of phenomenal. Um, oh, yeah. And, and two, living in an area where those resources are available, I mean, I'm just reminded of another story um, that kind of went viral last year uh, about a diabetic who died, a guy named Shane Patrick, uh, let me get this yeah. name, Shane Patrick Boyle, I think was his name. He was kind of a, he was a, a zine artist yeah. in Houston, uh, and there's a really great um, graphic comic that was made about him by his friend Ted Clawson. Um, but, you know, Shane's story, just in a nutshell, was that he was living in Houston, and there, there was a pretty robust safety net. And he was a low-income individual, and he um, accessed his insulin and his other supplies through the safety net. But then he moved uh, to a small town in Arkansas, I think Mina, Arkansas, mm-hmm. where his mom was. He was taking care of his mother, um, who was dying, and uh, he wasn't able to access insulin. He created a GoFundMe campaign and didn't raise enough money in time. Um, and so he also died of DKA. And, um, you know, it just strikes me that, you know, he just, he changed. He probably, I can't speak for his thought process, but he probably wasn't thinking that it was going to be more difficult. You know, you don't think yeah. that, like, it really matters what community you live in. Uh, we just kind of think that we should be able to access our life-saving drugs regardless or you know, hormones regardless and uh, th- that's not the case so you're you're also very fortunate to live in an area that has that kind of discount pharmacy where you can access your drugs at a, at a discount. Well and let me say that this organization um, was a local nonprofit, and um, because they, I was such a I don't know and ideal patient or whatever, I ended up sitting on that board of directors as a, as a patient to make wow. sure that they had, you know, and just what a, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just very thankful. And, yeah. you know, I'm curious, and maybe this is some research you can do considering your industry is for somebody that is, has no insulin. Like my mom just had surgery a while ago, knee surgery or whatever, and they had a bottle of whatever insulin, I can't remember what it was. But they ha- usually after a big surgery they give they give you insulin. They had it locked behind a cage in in her room, which blew my mind. But if you were to go to go without, and you went into the emergency room, would they have to give you what you needed? That's a good question. You know, life or death. It, I mean, yeah, I think. Um I think I have to imagine they would. I, they would absolutely treat your DKA at the time. Um, and I, I have to imagine they would um, help with insulin at least a little bit, but to varying degrees. You know, like the thing about insulin is it's not like the emergency room can give you a vial and then you're fine because sure, then what happens yeah. when that vial runs out? I actually heard um, when I was doing some of my reporting on Alex's story, I was looking into uh, GoFundMe campaigns, um, and I, I asked uh, people raising money for insulin, and um, I read about this woman, I think in uh, Washington maybe, mm-hmm. and I wasn't actually able to speak with her, so I, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, you know, I can believe the veracity of this, but uh, I didn't like double check it in a journalistic sense, which is why I didn't really report on it. But she was saying that she was in an emergency room with DKA. She ran out of insulin, and the doctors wrote her prescription. She filled it, but it turns out that that was a type of insulin that she's allergic to. And, oh, I don't Lord. know if it was like Pimolog, Nevolog, whatever. Um, so then she needed she needed the other type. Uh, you know, if she had gotten hemolytic, she had nevolog, or she had gotten nevolog, she had hemolog, whatever it is. And, um, uh, but because she had just filled the prescription, you know, just hours before, her insurance wasn't covering it. So she was trying to raise money to cover the cost of the insulin. So I, you know, I don't know. I, I can't vouch for the veracity of the story. I, you know, I've read it. 
uh, and I'm I'm not inclined to disbelieve it. Um, but I think there there are limits. This is all to say that I think there are limits to what an ER, even a well-intentioned emergency room, is really able to provide to a type one diabetic who, um, you know, needs a continual and thorough supply of insulin to stay alive. Well, and going back to when you know the I think it was the rapper that you were talking about earlier about. Rural, rural, yeah, yeah, <laughs> rural. Okay, that's a hard word for me to say. Rural communities may, and you know, their pharmacies and things like that may not have a large stock of certain things. And so, I had a past podcast guest who moved back to Arkansas, which was his home area, and he drove up to the pharmacy, and they're like, "Yeah, we're out." He was like, "What am I supposed to do?" Well, you can drive, you know, two hours to our sister pharmacy or whatever it was, and I'm like. How do you run out of insulin? Uh-huh. I mean, like, yeah. I'm saying this to the pharmacy world. If you're down to 10 bottles, it's time to reorder. Uh-huh. You know, I just... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just think that I, I, I don't live in a rural area, but um, I, I, I live... For most of my life, I've lived in college towns. Um, yeah, me too. Columbia, Missouri, and now Madison, Wisconsin. And... Uh, I actually think I have the same problem in St. Louis as well. And that's a pretty big city where um, they, the pharmacies are not keeping, you know, they're not keeping 400 bottles of Hemolog in stock. And so when you need a couple bottles, you know, it's quite often they'll say, oh, well, we'll have to double check to make sure we can have this available for you today. It, it usually yeah, so yeah. hasn't taken more than a day to fill a prescription of insulin at the pharmacies, but there have been several days where um, I haven't been able to fill the prescription that same day, and you know I was kind of castigated by a uh, by a, a physician one time, you know, saying like, "Hey, you can't let your insulin supply get so low that you yeah. need insulin the same day. You need to refill this before you get to that point." In case. Well, and I think that's another that's another hot topic because depending on your insurance, you can't fill it. But let's just say you busted a vial, mm-hmm. so you're out, and you, you know you that's your 30 day supply, but you need it now on day 18 instead of day 30. And you know they don't know that you busted that vial, so they may not cover the fact that you need that insulin early, and that I think is a total crap. And I will say one of the things that I've also personally done, and maybe I'm a straight hustler. I don't know what this situation is, but I've always, in, well, recently I found endocrinologists that, let's just say, maybe this is illegal. I'm not going to tell you what endocrinologists I'm using, but I use, you know, one unit of insulin for every 12 grams of carbs. Well, they would ex- exaggerate that mm-hmm. so that my one-month prescription would give me an extra bottle. Or something, so I would always have a backup supply, and mm-hmm. you know that's key. And I, when, when I'm down, and I think about that every time, like it, what in you? So I'm saying that as a tip, as a hustler. Yeah. <laughs> you know, ask your doctor. It's not unethical in my mind, and if you, let's say, pay have to pay two hundred dollars uh, per month for your insulin, and that whether it's two vials or four vials because I know everything is different, then hmm. why not ask him for that? Right. Yeah. I also, yeah, I have a lot of Especially friends. Especially if, if you're not going to sell it. Uh, yeah. I think if you sell it, that can get into some fraud territory. But, um, yeah, I can't speak to the legality of it, but the ethics of it, are, for me, I'm totally fine with it, because you're going to be using that insulin anyway. Exactly. Just making sure you have, yeah, uh, I have zero problems with that. And I mean, frankly, I just got, for the very first time, before I moved up to Madison, I got my first three-month supply of insulin. Um, you know, I was always going month by month before. Yeah. And because uh, I couldn't figure out how to get the three-month supply. And then I figured out I had to go to a specific pharmacy because of my insurance, uh, blah, blah, blah. But I got my first three-month supply, and I just like... It feels great. I'm living large, you know, like I, I have, <laughs> have three months worth of insulin in my fridge and I, I feel very settled and secure and uh, it, it's a very good feeling to know I have that much insulin security, you know. 
Well, and I'm thankful to, and and I think it's only because I'm so active in the diabetes online community and I'm sharing my story with a lot of parents of children with the disease. And again, that's how I got my first um, Dexcom was, you know, she changed and she went to the Abbott Free Cell Libre and that worked better for her children, but already had all these supplies. And so I'm watching this group because we have a support group um, that meets at the Harold Ham Diabetes Center here in Oklahoma City. And unfortunately, that group is growing because more children are being diagnosed. But the parents are sharing these tips like, hey, we're stockpiling when we have our insurance to the tribe, you know, because they have it's a better system. And then the next year, they'll be on a regular, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever, where they're a little bit more limited. And so they'll stockpile, stockpile supplies. So when a friend's kid drops their bottle or the pump breaks or whatever, somebody has a backup. Right. And it's incredible. And I, I say to people, too, and if, especially if you hear this podcast and you're on an island, you don't know anybody, get online. Because there are so many support groups. I'm on so many ridiculous things on Facebook and Twitter, which is great. And I say that in a, in a positive way, but I learned so much and, you know, and people extending their sensors and rebuilding things and night scout and all these things. It's like, yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's really remarkable to be able to talk to people about it. Um, yeah. You know, I reconnected with, my friend who I grew up with who's diabetic, um, mm-hmm. I reconnected with him when I moved back to my hometown five years ago, um, which is Columbia, Missouri. I've since moved from there, but uh, I started playing in a softball league with him. And the last time I had seen him, I wasn't diabetic. And now I'm right. diabetic. We talked about it a lot. We talked about how we were managing <laughs> our blood sugars while we were playing softball. Um, and I think that's one of the really kind of fundamentally incredible things about the type of work that you do online and the type of work that patients are able to do online is that you get to create these communities where, you know, diabetics who like, yeah, maybe type 1 diabetics are, you know, relatively, there's lots of us, but there's not a whole lot of us in social groups. And if we can have a place to connect and talk uh, and kind of, you know, trade secrets and that kind of thing, I think that's a really great thing for patient health. I was in Indianapolis a month ago or so, maybe a couple months ago now, and uh, uh, a barista at a coffee shop saw my insulin pump. And he's like, hey, what's that? And I was like, oh, it's my insulin pump. He goes, I'm diabetic too. And then, you know, I, I'm a stranger in Indianapolis, but I talked to this dude for 20 minutes. Um, <laughs> I think there's just like an impulse for, you know, for people to be able to talk and, and share stories um, and share advice and support and all of that. And so I think that's one of the fundamentally great things about the kind of work that, that you're think- doing and other people are doing online. Well, thank you for that. And I, I have to say, too, and it's one of the things, and I've mentioned this in previous podcasts, is that I never talked about the disease because I didn't think I was different. You know, I didn't. I, I lived in, you know, I don't know what the word is, but on an island in my mind, but I didn't know that I was on an island until mm-hmm. I really started speaking about it. You know, um, I wasn't shy all the time about giving a shot at the table or whatever, but except for in certain scenarios, business meetings and things like that. but when I finally came out of the diabetes closet, it was awesome because I saw a woman at the beach in North Carolina who had an insulin pump attached to her bikini. And I'm like, I know you have diabetes. Let's talk. You know, it's like, uh, it's just an opener into a conversation to somebody who gets it. Yeah. Yeah. I like to go to strangers in the airport and say, what's that thing on your arm? (laughs) Yeah. I've been traveling a lot. And um, having to get the pat down and do all that, mm-hmm. this this woman was like, so tell, the woman who was patting me down was training somebody else, and she had so many questions. And I feel like, in my mind as an adult, instead of getting angry when you have to be in a different situation that's going to be maybe a little bit longer than everybody else, it's an opportunity to educate. Yeah. And the more you can educate someone, the more compassion they can have for somebody that you know, I don't just get to walk through the line and do the normal scan and cruise through. How often, how often do you get pulled aside? I purposely um, opt out. 
Oh, you do? Yeah, because with, you know, with Dexcom, you're not supposed to go through all these major scanners and all this. Yeah. Uh, that's stupid now. Too late to <laughs> Yeah, and... I, I probably get pulled aside two or three, uh, two out of three times. So I've been so far, you know, I'm frequently pulled aside and patted down. That probably happens two out of three times. Really? Probably one out of three times they check me for bombs, you know, they like make me touch my insulin pump and all that. And then they like rub my hand with a swab and put it into machines to see if I have any bomb making material. Yeah. And one, I set that off. I, I have no idea how that happened. Uh, it was just probably a glitch in the machine. But then I had to get pulled aside for like, a real, you know, it oh, wasn't yeah. a heavy search or strip search or anything, but they did like a real thorough pat down. They went through all of my stuff. Uh, so I've like been that far in the process, but also sometimes I just walk through and I, just, I don't understand <laughs> why okay, well, it's so different each time. So here's the note to you. You, you're supposed to opt out because the oh. x-ray machines can affect your deck from. Okay. Um, your receiver, your sensors, or anything you're traveling with, in addition to all of your medications, well, not your medications can go through the x-ray machine, you know, like it normally goes through, but you're supposed to have those in hand and not mm-hmm. allow them to go through that as well because they can mess them up. Mm-hmm. And, I, it, it, yeah, I remember crying through the first one because I'm like, this is totally ridiculous. Like, yeah. I shouldn't have to go through all this. And now I know exactly what to wear so when they're – putting their hands, you know, over every part of my body. I'm like, ish, I'm okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's just one of those extra things that you either get angry about it or you just think, you know what, that's all right. I don't have to go through that damn machine and we'll go from there. So so have you experienced any other tra- things when traveling with diabetes that have, you know, I always think about I've had so much medication. Do you take an extra bottle of insulin, you know? Oh, of course. I mean, the hardest thing is keeping it cold, you know. And I just got, um, I just got like a little travel carrier that has frozen, you know, those like reusable things in them, Uh, and that's worked pretty well. And it says it keeps it cold for about twelve hours or so. But you know, I love like before I was diabetic, I loved international travel. I lived in (laughs) southern Africa for a couple years. Um, and it's, I've just now, seven years later, I've just now started going abroad again. Um, you know, I went to, this doesn't super count, but I went to Canada in 2014. Mm-hmm. Then I went to Scotland in 2016. Nice. And then this year I went to uh, Mexico and then to Guatemala. So I'm starting to do some of the types of traveling that I was doing um, when I was younger, and uh, you know, parts of it feel familiar, uh, and that feels good. That I was like, "Hey, I still got it." Then parts of it are just <laughs> like, "What the hell am I doing with my insulin? How am I going to keep this cold if I'm, you know, I've got this little pack that can keep it cold for twelve hours, but I'm, you know, I'm real close to the equator and I'm fixing to be away from electricity for three days. So, like, what am I going to do with, you know, so?" I don't know. It just makes it, it's a challenge for sure. It's a challenge, but, um. Well, and I gotta say on that, like, there, and I can't speak to this with 100% accuracy, and I don't know a specific company, but of course I see all the time all of this new gear that's coming out for keeping things cold, mm-hmm. um, longer, this, that, and the other. But when you say, like, let's just use Mexico as an example, what, do you not have access to a refrigerator or, are you Mexico really wasn't like- a problem. Mexico wasn't a problem because the places I was, I always had access to a refrigerator. Um, but when I was in Guatemala, we were at, you know, our, we didn't have individual, uh, 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 at, at one of the hotels I stayed in, I did a homestay for most of the time. And so mm-hmm. I could have access to a fridge and a freezer. But at one of the hotels I stayed at, we didn't have our own personal, um, refrigerator in my room. Uh, mm-hmm. And so for a while, I was like, well, it's kind of chilly and it's like very shady in this room, so I'll just see if it can stay cool. And then it like started getting hot again. I was like, oh, <laughs> geez, what am I going to do? And what I ended up doing was uh, putting the insulin in the hotel's Coke machine. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and that was great, but then I had to travel home, and there was no freezer accessible to me, so I wasn't able to, you know, freeze those refreezable ice packs. And so we were traveling, traveling for you know ten plus hours in some pretty, pretty hot heat um, right. with my insulin that was just you know trying to retain coolness. But it's a challenge. It worked out fine. Uh, you know, I didn't have any problem with insulin at all, but um, it's not easy. So I'm going to out... It's not something I used to think about. Well, absolutely not. And let me say this. Maybe, you know, being a kid with it, and I guess I didn't think about it rationally a lot of times in my life. I've only broken two bottles of insulin in my life that I recall. And that one of those was a couple of years ago on Halloween. Um, <laughs> but... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be careful how I say this. So I was in Indianapolis in, I think, May. Um, Nova Nordisk flew a couple of us out to talk about affordability and accessibility. And it was a great conversation. But for the first couple of – the first 24 or 48 hours – now, after we'd gone to the racetrack for the day, because we went to see Charlie Kimball, and it's a really hot day. We knew that going into it. I always have my insulin in my purse and a little in a thing. I've never refrigerated it. Once I take it out of the fridge to use, mm-hmm. it's out. No worries. And I went up to one of their big wigs and said, while we're at the racetrack, I was like, listen, I don't know if maybe my insulin got too hot, but this, it, you know, I'm, I'm having really highs and highs when we were like 250. And I can't exactly recall what he said, but he went into great detail about your insulin would have to be above, let's say, 86 degrees for at least 15 hours for it to even affect it or to even, you know, question it. You know, everything that they tell us, as they have to because they have to, you know, it could kill somebody if it's bad. but. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be, it's not as strict as they say. And when he explained everything, my blood sugar ended up being fine. It was stress and travel and yada, whatever. All kinds of other factors that was brought into the equation. But, you know, it's just like I'm a rule follower. And so I get really really uptight when things aren't like I. they tell me how to do it. I've been compliant is a bad word my whole life. So I think it's one of those things that when you sit with a group of people who get it, it's like, do you really change your lancet every single time? No. Do, mm-hmm. I don't change my syringe for every single time that I give a right. shot. You know what I mean? Like, right. give yourself a break. Give yeah. yourself a break. And do your best when you travel internationally like I do. And I'm sure I know. Try to plan ahead. You know, I laugh about, because I get really uptight about traveling. Yeah, I went to Vermont this summer. What am I going to pack? What all supplies do I need? And I was like, you know what? I'm not in a third world country. If something were to happen, I'd have access to it. You know what I mean? Right. And even third world countries aren't third world countries, really. Yeah. So. Well, anything else you want to add to this? Insulin's high cost. Uh, This is great. I think we covered a lot of ground here. (laughs) We went from the high cost to international travel and back again. Uh, I just think it's so cool. Um, you know, you talked about living, you know, coming out of the diabetes closet or whatever. And I, I think that, um, you know, I don't think I was ever ashamed of diabetes and I don't think I was ever going to let it conquer me. But uh, living out with it, you know, being open about being diabetic is something that's pretty new to me. And I, I find it pretty liberating. You know, it's it's a very... It's something I hadn't thought about before, and I just think it's such a cool thing, and I just have uh, mad respect for you people who are, uh, people like you who are pushing us all to do it. I think it's so cool. I think it's one of those things when you talk about it more than it's not such, and it was never a dirty word by any means. It was one of those things that um, I didn't want to be different from anyone else. Mm-hmm. And as a young person, of course, you want to be like, I was a cheerleader. You want to be like everybody else. And right. so I think recognizing the fact that you are different, you're special, that's not a negative thing. It's one of those, uh-huh. is it a blessing or is it a curse? And 
if I didn't have this disease, I wouldn't be having this conversation. And I wouldn't have met so many incredible people. Right. So, I mean, it's for me, at the end of the day, it's a blessing. And I know some people will be shaking their heads like, you're full of crap, whatever. But you know what? Some days you just have to change your attitude. And, you know, it's, it, everything's going to work out. We're all going to die. And it's just a matter of do you want to just live life, whatever has been given to live you in well a good way? You right. Yeah. You're traveling. I'm traveling. You're hiking. I mean, diabetes has not kept me from anything in my life and you know I'm not going to let it yeah and I want to throw one last thing because in your article you mentioned um the Nobel Prize dancing and and insulin and a dollar and we're not going to go into all that so am I hallucinating or did your father just get awarded the Nobel Prize (laughs) My father won the Nobel Prize on Wednesday. It's um, very surreal. What what did you win it for? I haven't read anything, and I should have done more research. So tell me. And the picture that you put up of your mom and your dad was adorable. Yeah. 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 He um, so uh, he won the Nobel Prize in chemistry. He um, shares with two other people. Um, He's a molecular biologist himself, but he won for a technique called Sage Display, which uh, I won't bore you with the details of, mostly because I don't understand them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But essentially what he did was, um, they described it as putting evolution in the test tube. Wow. The way of, rather than trying to design a gene and hoping it can survive in the real world, which it probably cannot, it's a way of setting the conditions within a test tube to uh, allow the thing you want to flourish uh, so that it will develop itself kind of in a uh, sped-up evolutionary way. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's surreal. I, I cannot believe it. I'm so... I'm That's just amazing. so amazed. I'm so pleased and happy for him and proud of him. And uh, I, I think we're all going to go to Stockholm in December for the awards. Uh, yeah. So I, get to, I get to watch my father accept the Nobel Prize. Uh, I'm over the moon about it. That I is amazing. Myself. Wait, okay, so I don't know the process. So when you're nominated, how many, like, was he shocked that he got it or was he like, yeah. I have no idea how the nomination process works, <laughs> but it's not like he turns in an application, you know, it's not like he right. missed, like, my application for the Nobel Prize. It's like a, from what I understand, a fairly secretive process. So wow. the world found out on Wednesday morning, and so did he. You know, they called him at, at 4 a.m. and then immediately did the press conference afterwards. Uh, so, you know, we were all just so shocked. Wow, that's so incredible. I I, I will continue to, to follow your Twitter feed and things like that and see how things go. And don't forget to pack, pack plenty of insulin when you go to Stockholm and Thank you. Thank you. I will. All right. Well, Bram, thank you so much for being a guest. And I'm sure that, you know, I'd like to keep you involved in things and keep writing and doing everything you're doing for people with diabetes. And um, I'm just really thankful that my stocking worked. (laughs) Thank you for uh, reaching out. Yeah. And if you think of anyone that would be valuable for this podcast, considering what we do and all that and speaking with me, you know, You've got my contact information. Please send people my way. That's It's all about spreading the word to the community. So, well, I'll do that. All right. So well, have a great weekend. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. What a fascinating topic, and I am so happy to have shared that with a person who gets it. Um, And so please, when this is released, chime in. We want to hear from you. And I know even though this is hard to say out loud, the pharmaceutical companies, all the people that we're pointing fingers at, would like to hear this too. And I feel confident with everything that's going on right now that we're going to change the energy that is surrounding this subject right now. So 
don't be shy, but be kind. That's what I will say. And then also encourage others to get involved, whether that means being an advocate or marching at the JDRF walk or, or whatever that means. Um, and do your research. You know, it's been brought to my attention time and time again that in rural communities and where people that may not be seen in endocrinologists, they don't know that these discount cards are available. And I promise if you call your pharmacy or you call a rep, they're gonna do what they can to make sure that you have the necessary supplies to live. So thank you all so much for welcoming me back in this 57th episode. I look forward to so much more that's lying ahead. And I can't wait to share how this podcast is gonna continue to expand into all of the diabetes world. So keep doing what you're doing and cheers to the highs and low, everyone.